Okay, hello and welcome to the Institute uh, for Government and Health Foundations event at Labour Conference, looking at Labour's plans for the NHS and social care. Very grateful to the Health Foundation for supporting this event. Um, I'm Emma Norris, I'm the Director of Research at the Institute for Government. Um, so, what are we going to be talking about today? The NHS is always a political battleground, and now more so than ever. The next government's going to need to address all sorts of major challenges, workforce shortages, burnout, backlogs that predate the pandemic but have been made much worse by it, people struggling to access GP appointments, record waiting times for ambulances, you name it, it's not looking good in the NHS. Despite substantial uh, additional funding for the NHS and for social care, many of these issues are likely to get much worse before they get better. Um, last week, the new Health Secretary, Therese Coffey, set out her stall for dealing with some of these problems, pledging to be the patient's champion and, amongst other things, setting a target for people to be able to see a GP within 14 days. Today, we're delighted to be hearing more about Labour's plans for improving health and social care um, with a keynote speech from the excellent Wes Streeting, the Shadow Secretary of State for Health. Um, and we're then going to have a response from Anita Charlesworth, uh, the Director of Research at the Health Foundation. I'm going to be making sure that we've got a packed room today, so I'm going to make sure I leave lots of time for questions. Uh, we'll hear from Wes for about 10 to 15 minutes. From Anita, we'll have some conversation amongst ourselves, but we'll then leave a good uh, 20 minutes at least for you to ask what you want to. For those of you who are using Twitter, uh, the hashtag is IFGLab22. So, without further ado, Wes, I'm going to hand over to you to uh, kick things off. Thank you very much, Emma, and it's, it's great to be here this morning, um, not least because, as Emma said, the crisis in the NHS is so grave, and people are understandably looking to Labour um, for the answers because they can see the cavalry isn't coming with the Conservatives. In fact, I was just um, saying to um, Emma and Anita, um, I'm not convinced that Liz Truss isn't still a Liberal Democrat, a deep state Liberal Democrat deliberately crashing the Conservative Party <laughs> because there is no other plausible explanation to the clown show we've seen over the course of the last week. I mean, I actually thought that we couldn't get worse than Therese Coffey's statement on um, health and social care on Thursday. I thought... What an ins insufficient, unsubstantial response to the greatest crisis we've seen in the history of the health service. But it's almost as if the Chancellor watching from the Treasury on the TV said, hold my beer, I can go one better with the Kamikaze budget on Friday. Um, the only budget I could possibly imagine where the Chancellor could both give the bankers um, more bonuses and yet they would still vote with their feet in the markets. In fact, we, um, perhaps we should do a sweepstake on where the pound will be by the end of this event. Um, and this is really serious. And so joking aside, um, I feel, as uh, someone who's been coming to Labour conferences for a long time, in government, in opposition, um, I've never felt more optimistic about Labour's prospects of winning the next general election, but also <laughs> under no illusion that we can't rely on the Conservatives to fail we have to demonstrate a positive Labour alternative. Um, and that's what I'm going to set out this week in my speech on Wednesday. And I'll give you some clues about what you might hear over the course of the coming three days from myself, from Rachel Reeves this morning, from Keir Starmer tomorrow, about how we grip the crisis and beat a path to um, a brighter future for the health and social care system. Emma rattled off some of the key stats which I think underline um, the scale of the crisis. And of course, the Conservative Party's response, new faces around the cabinet table, same script, will be to blame the pandemic, 
Let's just deal with that up front. Waiting lists were at a record 4.5 million before the pandemic. There were 100,000 staff shortages in the NHS before the pandemic, 112,000 vacancies in social care before the pandemic. So the Conservatives blame uh, COVID. I blame the Conservatives and think that what we're seeing um, is the result of more than a decade of mismanagement. And the other thing I've been reflecting on in recent days, and we see this um, in, in what's, I think, a, a pretty good challenge from Claire Foges and the Times today. Uh, there are lots of voices on the right of British politics who are now saying um, things they've always believed but never dared to say out loud, which is it's not our fault, the fault of Conservatives at the NHS in this crisis, it's the fact that the NHS is a publicly funded public service free at the point of use, as if somehow something that was affordable and deliverable in the 20th century is no longer affordable in the 21st. And I think there's no better example of conservative miserabilism about the future of our country than saying that something so fundamental and cherished in our country as a free at the point of use, based on need health service is no longer affordable. It's not the NHS model we can't afford, it's another term of conservative government. Where I do want to take up Claire's challenge is that I don't believe it is just about investment. In fact, I believe that if the answer is just pouring more money into a 20th central model of care, then the NHS will be unsustainable and it will not meet the enormous opportunities that exist out there to revolutionise the way that we deliver health and care in our country. And as many of you may know, I come from <coughs> Labour's modernising tradition, uh, the tradition that wins general elections and makes enormous differences to people in our country. And so what you'll hear from me on Wednesday in my speech is yes, an argument about investment, but also a big argument about change and modernisation. Because I think we can do better than telling people that they can have an appointment within two weeks. In fact, however bad primary care is, the majority of people do get an appointment within two weeks. And I remember the good old days where we guaranteed an appointment within um, two days. Um, so what would we do? Um, firstly, we've got to recognise that the blockages that we see in hospitals, which you know, tells a story about what's going in hospitals, of course, paints a much wider story about where the problems are right across the health and care system. And let's start with the exit door rather than the entrance door, because everyone knows about the waits for ambulances. Everyone can see the queue at accident in emergency department. I think that's why there's so much anxiety within the public about uh, the future of the NHS, because they've never known a time where they couldn't guarantee they could rely on emergency care. So why is that? Well, rather than look at the entrance door, let's look at the exit door and the 400,000 or so delayed discharges we're seeing every month. These are 400,000 people who are fit and well enough to go home, but can't leave the hospital because support isn't there in the social care system. So if we're serious about unblocking the uh, delays in hospitals, um, we have no choice but to grip the issue of social care. And in my mind, um, the starting point for social care is a very similar one to the NHS, which is workforce. Because for all of the advantages of science and technology, and I'll touch on that in a moment, uh, the, the NHS social care will always be primarily people-based services. 
And in social care, we are in um, the unbelievable position where people are leaving the social care profession to work for the likes of Amazon, who last time I checked weren't famous for great pay terms and conditions, because nonetheless they are better than this vital public service in terms of what they pay and the conditions they offer. In the middle of a cost of living crisis, I can well understand why people are choosing to leave poverty pay and social care in order to take a golden hello um, with retailers. So better pay, better terms and conditions, and crucially, career progression has got to be a central part of what we offer in terms of social care. And for me, a national care service is unfinished business for Labour. It's one of the last white papers we published in government. Um, when I say national care service, um, that doesn't mean that on day one in the Department of Health and Social Care, I'm going to be going after all those brilliant providers in the, in the voluntary sector and some of the brilliant providers in the private sector too, I might add, and bring them all um, back in-house. Um, I'm not interested in taking on um, good practice and clamping down on good practice. I want to see more of it. Um, what I will do is go after bad practice. So that means national pay, terms and conditions for staff, with new fair pay agreements and social care being the first sector we'll settle for. It also means going after those poor quality providers um, who consistently get bad CQC ratings, but nonetheless continue to provide shoddy care and poor value for taxpayers' money. Um, I think particularly of those private equity-owned care homes who are not just providing substandard care, but literally leeching hundreds of millions of pounds out of a system that desperately needs it. So as I announced the other day, we'll be clamping down on that, cancelling their contracts and bringing them back in and recommissioning. Uh, and we'll also be establishing national uh, terms and conditions <coughs> and expectations for people who receive care so that wherever they live, in whichever part of the country they're from, they receive great quality care. That's what I mean by a national care service. And then, of course, turning to the NHS, we also need to deal with the workforce crisis. So going back to the front door of that hospital, the front door to the NHS is broken. Primary care is overwhelmed. And what was staringly obviously missing last Thursday from the Sesame Street statement from our ABCD um, health secretary was any answer to the central challenge, which is the workforce. Unless we have more doctors, unless we have more nurses, unless we have more healthcare professionals, we haven't got a chance of gripping the crisis and building an NHS fit for the future. And of course, staff in the service know, because they've been through it themselves, you don't magic up new doctors and nurses overnight. It takes time to train them. But one of the reasons we're losing staff from the NHS is they can't see the cavalry coming. Well, the cavalry is coming with Labour, and you can expect us to say something significant this week on workforce, and you won't have long to wait. Um, but going back to the central challenge um, I posed about um, reform and change and modernisation, I, I, I think it's an abysmal failure that we spend so much money on hospital care at the expensive end of the um, spectrum because we just don't get there early enough in terms of prevention, early intervention, primary care, mental health, I've mentioned social care already, and community services. So my programme for change and modernisation in the NHS involves shifting the focus genuinely uh, to prevention and early intervention, which is better for patients and better for our outcomes as citizens, 
but also represents better value for money for the taxpayer. And believe me, people are becoming quite cynical about the answer to the NHS crisis simply being more money. And the final thing I want to say, so we can hear from Anita and then um, most importantly hear from you as well, <coughs> is for all of the pessimism that people feel around health and social care at the moment and for the lack of hope they sense from the government, there is a revolution taking place out there in terms of um, med you know, medical technology, science, life sciences and innovation and I want Britain to be at the forefront of it because if we seize those opportunities and place Britain at the forefront of that technological revolution, we can do something even more remarkable with the model of health and care in this country um, than simply um, get there early with diagnosis and treatment. And that's to predict and prevent. If you look at what's happening in genomics, if you look at what's happened with data and the way in which we can harness all of those possibilities, there is a bright future for the NHS and for the social care system that's still, for the NHS, publicly funded, free at the point of use, but a very different model of care than the one we have today. That's the kind of change and modernisation agenda I'm serious about. Um, I don't think we're going to get it from the Conservatives. It's like asking arsonists to put out the fire they created. It's just not going to happen. And we feel on our shoulders in the Shadow Cabinet a weight of responsibility because we know that however disaffected and disillusioned and perhaps even disgusted people are with what they've seen from the Conservatives um, in government, um, we've got work to do to persuade people to vote positively for Labour. And I hope that when people see and hear what we say about the NHS, it's not just the usual hackneyed, cliched slogans they've heard for far too long in opposition. There will be no 24 hours to save the NHS, and I'm not going to pretend I can fix it in 24 hours afterwards. Just a good deal of honesty, a well-thought-through plan, and a long-term vision that gives confidence, hope, and conviction that the party that founded and created the NHS in the 21st century can reimagine it for the 21st. Thank you, Wes. Thank you very much, everybody. I, I, I'm, um, I'm, I'm just going to make a, a, a few remarks. And, and I'm going to start, I think, by, um, by making one main point, which is, I think, that um, to emphasise that the challenges across the NHS and social care system are systemic. They affect every part of the NHS, <clears throat> every part of our, our care system across all of the country. And at their root is the issue of a lack of capacity, yeah? A lack of workforce, a lack of physical uh, uh, capacity as well. We have fewer beds, <coughs> fewer scanners, fewer doctors, fewer nurses than comparable countries. We have run our system hot and at the edge of what it's capable of doing, and COVID broke that model, yeah? Fixing that capacity is absolutely critical to any vision for health and care going forward. And unfortunately, fixing capacity means spending money. Yeah, there isn't a route to fix capacity that doesn't involve serious investment. There's that catch-up investment that deals with the fact that for 10 years, funding has not grown in line with demand. We've robbed Peter to pay Paul to keep services going without actually investing in staff training, in, in the, the beds that we need. 
but also now we face a decade in which a rapidly aging population is uh, upon us. That is a fantastic thing. You know, people are living longer. We should celebrate that. But people living longer has consequences. And people living longer deserve to live with dignity and in good health. And as a society, that means us coming together to ensure that the services that are there to enable them to live as they would want with dignity and their families are able to, to, to live their lives well at the same time. <clears throat> and so um, investment will have to be at the heart of any credible plan. But it <coughs> is um, necessary but not sufficient. And I want to emphasise, I think, three things which I think are really, really important in thinking then about how we spend that I I investment. The first is... Um, a focus on inequalities. So alongside us seeing that we've got overall a capacity gap, what we've seen over recent years is that, for example, the public health funding has fallen by a quarter in real terms, but it's fallen most in the areas with highest need. And in the 2000s, when funding went in, funding was earmarked, particularly and targeted at the um, more disadvantaged areas. And guess what? Inequalities in mortality actually narrowed. Brilliant research from the University of Liverpool, where, <coughs> where we are um, uh, this week, showing that actually if you target investment at communities that need it most, you do make a difference to the things that really, really matter. Yeah? So focusing those resources on the areas that really need it will be really, really important. The second thing that's really important, as Wes said, is that um, uh, for, for as long as I can remember, and I can now remember a long time, I've been working in health policy for 30 years, we have talked about shifting the balance, moving investment upstream, investing in primary care. We've never done it. If you go back to, to when the big money went in before in the, in, in the 2000s, and I, I was involved with the... Uh, oneness review there, it's the proudest moment of my uh, uh, c career. It made an enormous difference, but, but actually for completely understandable reasons, it was focused on sorting out the waiting lists, sorting out hospital care, um, and actually we didn't invest as, uh, uh, enough in primary care, in community services, in, in, in social care, and this time round it's really important that that changes. What that points to is my third point, which is, um, this is not going to be sorted out quickly, yeah? And, and actually, the, one of the absolutely endemic problems for the NHS and social care is here we have services that are foundational in people's lives, that take years to build, yeah? Uh, years to sustain, <clears throat> and we operate this short-term policy all the time, firefighting, crisis management, politics by, uh, management by slogan, yeah, we'll have to change and be serious about the NHS and social care, that's really important for the people who use it, it's also really, really important for taxpayers, because this yo-yoing boom and bust actually it, it is the way of not spending money well. And the prime example of that is cutting training places in 2011-12 to save pennies, yeah, but ended up costing us pounds with massive agency bills and all of those issues. So I think a, a really serious health policy agenda is long-term sustained investment. There is no alternative to that. 
modernisation that makes sure that money goes to the areas and the communities that need them, that funding is balanced between hospital care, social care and out of hospital, and the institutions that we need actually for long-term sustained policy making in things like the workforce, in prevention, in our capital investment. Only if we do that will we actually have an NHS and social care service which is fit for the future. Thank you. Thank you, Wes, and thank you, Anita. Um, some really kind of compelling and big visions for the NHS. You've both emphasised the systemic nature of the challenges in the NHS and the need for a long-term kind of grown-up plan for change. And clearly that's right. But I think lots of people are experiencing very difficult challenges in the NHS right now. And we have to speak up because the cheap seats at the back can't hear. Sorry, I'll move the mic closer. Clearly there's a need for, for a long-term sustained plan for the NHS. On the other hand, people are waiting much longer than they need to for ambulances. They're waiting, you know, huge amounts of time for GP appointments. They're struggling to um, access primary care. Wes, I'm going to start with you. If you when Labour come into government, if that's the state of the health system, is there anything that can be done in the short term to try and ease people's experience um, of accessing healthcare? Yes. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to speak directly into the microphone for the benefit of people at the back. But as a result, I might have to keep my voice down and sound like I'm presenting late night on Smooth FM. <laughs> um, and that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think we've seen too many kind of sticking plaster approaches from the current government. But that doesn't mean that um, we shouldn't try and realise the gains we can make from what I would describe as low-hanging fruit, which is why over the summer I spent so much time making arguments around things that actually are quite um, technocratic in the grand scheme of things and the sort of stuff that often goes over the heads of voters and even the heads of some of my colleagues when I start talking about um, the pensions issues and why people are leaving um, the healthcare profession early. Um, and I think we've been quite effective, actually, at pushing the government to the right solutions and also sometimes um, even creating space for government to move into. Um, because, with, I mean, you know, pensions is a really good example. I was asked by The Telegraph in an interview I did with them over the summer where I was sort of trying to directly appeal to Conservative voters and get them to vote Labour, which is what I tend to spend most of my time doing um, when I'm not thinking about the future of health and social care. Um, and, of course... You know, objectively, that policy is um, fairly regressive in the sense that it involves giving more money to people actually quite well off and are even more well off after Friday's um, uh, budget. Um, but it's sensible, it's pragmatic, um, it, gets, it gets us you know, some way to alleviating the scale of the crisis it is today. Similarly, which, you know, and this goes down like a bucket of cold sick at this conference, I can tell you, you know, saying we will use private sector capacity to ease pressures on the NHS, um, not something I love doing as a Labour politician. I'm slightly more left-wing than people think I am in the Labour Party. Um, and, and I'm not particularly happy about having to spend more money in the private sector than we would do if we had capacity within the state sector. And I also recognise we've got to get the balance right because often it's the same people working across both sectors and I don't want to fuel a boom growth in the private sector at the expense of the NHS and make things worse. So these are quite technical arguments, technocratic arguments, and they go over the heads of voters, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't be... <laughs> Um, making the case now in opposition and, and preparing seriously for government. 
but to the final point, which is, and it touches on something Anita said, and I think um, will resonate with lots of the people who live and breathe these issues every day. The question I ask most when I talk to people around the sector, whether in, in the NHS or in the think tanks or um, any number of the um, uh, lobby groups and charities that come to see me, is um, why? You know, why, why aren't we doing this already? Because I'm sure lots of things I said this morning, particularly in terms of prevention, early intervention, even technology, innovation, have been in every NHS five-year forward plan that I can remember. So the, question, the important question for me, and it is often a kind of a more technocratic question, is, well, why hasn't this happened? Is this a failure of public policy? Is it a failure of treasury? Um, is it a bureaucratic failure? Um, is it a question of um, too many competing priorities? Is it a question of vested interest, or is it a question of producer interest? What do I need to do to make sure we don't repeat the same kind of mistakes of warm words, good intentions, but, but failed delivery. Um, and I think one, what you'll see from the speech I make on Wednesday um, is two things. And it's really important, as I was arguing with um, some of my colleagues about why I wanted to be out the traps, kind of pinning my colours to the mast on some really big strategic questions this far from an election. You know, one, um, the speech will draw the battle lines um, that on which I want to fight the election against the Conservatives and will give our parliamentary candidates very good, what I'd call leaflet material, doorstep material to campaign on with the voters. That's kind of half the speech and it's an important part, obviously, otherwise great policy, but no Labour government, it's not really great policy, is it? Um, the which, you know, it took us long enough to learn that lesson. Um, and then, uh, but the second thing and the really significant thing is having a very clear sense for the sector um, and for um, you know the world of think tanks and people who have a direct interest in health policy and delivering you know health and care in our country about where Labour's going for the long term and an open door and an invitation to help us formulate not just the kind of the, the headline policies but the detailed plans for implementation now so that we can hit the ground running on day one. I don't want to spend the first year or two learning the ropes and getting to grips with the Department for Health and Social Care. We don't have enough time. It's one of the reasons I think it's outrageous. We've had three health secretaries in three months. It's deeply unfair on people who are busting a gut and burned out in the service. So, um, and that's what, you know, my invitation to you off the back of the speech you'll hear on Wednesday, you'll see very clearly where we want to go in the long term. And my invitation to you is to help us avoid the mistakes that have been made in the past and to seize the opportunities that are still available to us in the future so that on day one we're ready to go and ready to start hitting the ground running. Thanks, Wes. Anita? So, um, as I often say, paraphrasing Bill Clinton, I mean, at the, at the root of all this, it's the workforce stupid. So um, he said it's the economy stupid. And, and, and actually, I think this is an area where um, politics and health policy actually collide. Because when you ask the public what they think is at the root of the NHS's issues and what is at the root, if you like, of success with the NHS, they recognise that it is actually having the skilled workforce in enough numbers in the right places who feel valued that is make or break for both the NHS and social care. So for me, a credible health policy, a credible start is one which actually has a really credible workforce policy. Everybody knows, people know the electorate is intelligent, 
that you can't magic staff up overnight. But we also know that shortages actually are a policy choice. Yeah? Um, there is no reason why this country can't have enough doctors, nurses and skilled healthcare professionals. We, we need to train people. People want to work in these professions. They are also, I would say, um, life-changing um, uh, opportunities. So um, one of the things that in think tank language, the most appalling piece of jargon we talk about is thing called anchor institutions, which is the role of our big services in changing communities, yeah? And the NHS in a lot of the, of the most deprived parts of our country are the biggest employers, yeah? They have amazing jobs, if we, if we want them to, available to local people, which transform those families' lives, their opportunities and their kids' futures. Yeah? So actually, we can get into a win-win. We too often see a good NHS and social care system as a burden on society, as a drain on public finances. Surely after COVID, we can see that a flourishing NHS and care system, a healthy population, is not a drain and a burden. It is a route to economic success. It is fundamentally important to being a thriving society and having a thriving economy. And I'm really proud that actually um, uh, in, in, the, in Rachel Reeves, we have a shadow chancellor who fundamentally understands that point. Um, and we've been working really closely um, because I think Rachel sees health and social care as part of the foundational economy. She made those arguments long before she was shadow chancellor and before they were more fashionable. Um, and, and secondly, we've been working really closely together in terms of thinking about how do we make sure that the NHS, the social care system, is contributing to good health as part of a productive economy. Look at the quarter of a million people who are not active in the labour market at the moment because of sickness and ill health, identified by the Bank of England as, as being in large part due to NHS waiting lists and not being able to access treatment. So I definitely encourage you to tune... This is my kind of fanboy moment, but I would definitely encourage you to tune into Rachel's speech today because I think, you know, she, unlike our present Chancellor and many of his pre conservative predecessors, I think she understands that strong public services are the foundation of a strong economy, but also we don't have strong public services unless we have a strong economy, and that's writ large in our country today. You've both talked a lot about things that require investment. Um, social care workforce, um, to some extent capital investment, whereas I've got to ask you, um, how would a Labour government pay for that investment? And particularly given the fact that Kistama's come out and said that he would support um, continuing the kind of base rate tax cut, how, how do you finance it? I refer you to the Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Rees. No, uh, <laughs> um, look, I think, you know, politics is about choices, isn't it? And, you know, how is it that we can abolish the top rate of tax on people earning over £150,000, uh, but argue there isn't enough money to recruit and train more doctors and more nurses. You know, how is it we can give a tax cut to the biggest corporations um, and claim we don't have the money for um, a, a decent health and social care system? Um, I think that's kind of what you're seeing now, a very real dividing lines in politics. Um, we're not going to fall into the trap of being this sort of high tax, high spend, spending's the only answer to every problem Labour Party that's kept us in opposition for too long. Um, but I think what you'll hear from Rachel today is a serious plan for growth. Um, and yes, some 
immediate choices we can make um, about who pays um, in order to fund the things that we value as a society, but more importantly, um, a, a, a strong plan for economic growth and shared prosperity, because if the economy had grown under the Conservatives at the same rate it had grown under the last Labour government, there would be an additional £30 billion to spend on public services without having to raise a single tax rate for anyone. And that's what I mean about, you know, a strong economy being the foundation for strong public services. Um, you, we don't always have to reach for the lever of more tax, higher taxes, um, if you've got an economy that's growing. Because that's, you know, that this is a Labour Party now under Keir's leadership with Rachel as shadow chancellor, the person I think will be the first woman chancellor of our country, that understands that wealth creation is as important as wealth redistribution. And don't get me wrong, I believe, you know, lots of you know where I come from and my background, I really believe very strongly in redistribution of power, wealth and opportunity. Um, but I think you've got a much better chance of doing that if you start with wealth creation. Um, have the argument about how you distribute it, of course, but let's, let's also not overlook that fundamental point of creating wealth in the first place. And that is at the heart of what Rachel's argument will be today. Anita. Yeah, I mean, just to emphasise the uh, the point about the uh, criticality of uh, of economic growth. So over the last 15 years, you know, one of the countries that people look to as a comparator would be Germany and France. Over the last 15 years, GDP per head in Germany grown by 20%, GDP per head in France grown by 10%, not here. Those countries spend are able to spend then a lot more on um, on, on on their health health system, and we're able to uh, to withstand um, the pandemic a lot more without the impact on wider um, on wider health services on things like uh, uh, cancer. So, it, I mean, economic growth is is really fundamental. It's fundamental because I think the important thing to understand about the, the, the NHS is it's not just one short bit, you know, a few years of funding and then all is fine. You know, the nature of healthcare across all countries it, it is a, um, it's a wonderful pro problem of success. You know, we have a, uh, um, uh, more people and the health service can do more. That's what, you know, that... That's the point of societies, you know, to, to, to get better. But that comes with a, a, a price tag. And without economic growth, it's really, really difficult to work out how you support that health and social care system. One of the other things that you've both talked about is the importance of prevention and investment upstream. Um, clearly extremely sensible, but something that I think probably everybody in the audience has heard lots of people say lots of times, but we never seem to quite manage. We never seem to quite manage shifting um, the healthcare system to a focus on prevention. So I want to ask both of you, and, and Wes, I'll again start with you, how do you really go about doing that? How do you really go about refocusing um, healthcare on prevention rather than the other way around? So the first thing I'd say is that this is a challenge that is far bigger and requires a far wider um, sense of mission and focus than the National Health Service and, and social care provision. Um, if you're serious about prevention, you've got to look at health in every pol policy. Um, and you've got to, as I think Keir set out in his speech to the Fabian Society in January this year, um, and this is something that, you know, whenever I see Keir to talk about health and social care policy, it always comes back to prevention for him. It's, it's I think, probably the thing he is most 
um, you know, drives me hardest on is, you know, where are we on prevention, which is going to be really important for me in government because um, health in every policy is, you know, you know, a very laudable aim. Um, but, you know, people who've worked in government will know cabinet colleagues don't always take kindly to other cabinet colleagues coming along and telling them how to run their departments and do their job. So having that sense of leadership from the top and from number 10 is important. Um, it actually goes back to some of the things, you know, give some examples, goes back to some of the things I was working on when I was a shadow um, education minister working on schools and child poverty. It is about things like physical activity amongst young people. Um, looking at um, the disadvantage, relative disadvantage that kids growing up in poverty experience. It's one of the reasons why um, when I launched our 10 by 10 policy um, last year and spoke about it at a conference, giving children from poorer backgrounds the opportunity to do things like swim, um, uh, learn to ride a bike, learn to play a musical instrument, take part in performing arts. These are really important for children's health and well-being. And too many of those opportunities are concentrated um, on people whose parents can afford to pay for the after-school classes or to take them swimming at the weekends and take them on holiday into the beach and to the countryside and all those things that lots of people are able to take for granted. Um, also, you know, involves being quite firm on things like junk food, um, smoking cessation, addiction, alcohol addiction um, in, in particular. Um, and... You know, especially thinking about the cost of living crisis, you know, I'd love to be able to sit here in a way, although I'm not instinctively a nanny status, to sit here and say, well, you know, the sugar tax was really um, uh, effective as a public policy measure, even though Conservatives don't agree with themselves anymore on that. Um, uh, why not now go for a fat tax or a salt tax or a, you know, big sugar tax? Um, I, I just... I think it's hard to swallow um, in the middle of a cost of living crisis going hard on things like two-for-one deals or making life more expensive for families. Um, but I would like to seize the opportunity of working with um, the food and drink sector um, to be proactive about this and work together. Um, you know, I, I would love to be proven... I'd love them to take the opportunity to prove that it doesn't always require the heavy hand of the state and harder regulation or taxation to incentivise good conduct on things like formulation or, or ethical choices on advertising um, and marketing. Um, so I'm really keen to work with people and see how we go with that and see if we can um, be a bit more ambitious. The final thing I'd say, um, you know, uh, the government are, of, are often quite good at commissioning um, the right answers, um, whether it's Henry Dimbleby on food or um, Javed Khan on smoking and tobacco but then they don't listen and don't act. I mean, I do wonder why anyone bothers to do a review for the Conservatives anymore, because they just end up kind of sitting on a shelf and nothing happens. So, um, you know, I've been listening, I've been reading, <coughs> I'm quite keen to see real action um, to make sure that we're encouraging healthy choices, healthy living, um, and genuine prevention and public health. And having been a Cabinet Member for Health and Wellbeing in local government, um, you are absolutely preaching to the choir in terms of what has happened to public health budgets over the years, and I'm determined to get a grip on public health too. Thank you. Anita, prevention. <clears throat> yeah, so um, so two things. One one big picture actually back to Institute Government and almost and what you did is in that um, 
I mean, we, we, we're not very good at prevention, but actually, generally speaking, in UK public policy, we're not very good at anything that's long-term. So, in, you know, part of the reason why we've got low growth is because of lack of, uh, <coughs> of, of, of infrastructure investment across the economy. So I think one of the systemic things that any um, uh, government really needs to think about is how do we um, look at some of our institutional arrangements within government to get much better at um, investment. There is a question about um, what we count as investment, which I think across it is very old-fashioned. It is very bricks and mortar. Um, we've, we, you know, we've just got R&D into investment, but you know, human capital, and if you look at countries like um, New Zealand, if you look more locally at um, what they've done in Wales with the um, Health of Future Generations Act, you know, um, I think there's a serious question about um, about how we so in in New Zealand what they've done is 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 this thinking about four different types of capital so physical capital which is the classic sort of thing human capital which is is critical then all the environmental capital are are, are we running our country and our society to degrade future like, to to degrade uh, 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 natural assets and, and also health capital. You know, and, and actually judging themselves and in their treasury processes, um, judging themselves and being accountable, not just for today, but for the government's act of stewardship for, <coughs> for future generations and thinking much more broadly about uh, investment and more holistically. So I think that's really important. Where I come back on with ways is I think, sadly, that actually if you do want to affect the commercial drivers of health, which influence um, smoking, um, <coughs> uh, obesity... Then, then actually all the evidence is that regulation and physical measures really, really matter. And the last time we had a serious reduction in smoking rates was when actually we banned smoking in public places. And, and I think, um, you know, if you go back to the 2000s, Labour was very nervous about those measures and was actually behind the public. Yeah, who who were there and, and 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 understood that. So my plea to you is, don't be timid and don't be behind the public. Well, well, let me take up that challenge, and maybe we can do um, a kind of a, a good kind of carrot and stick um, live control uh, exercise. Um, we'll do we'll do carrot and conversation with um, big sugar and big salt and food and drink. And we'll demonstrate um, what will happen with um, a big stick and in terms of how we deal with big tobacco. And I'll say more about that, not maybe this week, but um, in the coming months, because I take your point entirely about tobacco. So food and drink, um, see where we are on tobacco and see if you want to go there, or maybe you might want to have a more proactive approach to things like reformulation and marketing and the things that you can do to um, help people live healthier lives. Thank you. OK, I'm aware that we've been talking amongst ourselves for a while. It's time to come to uh, the very large audience to uh, get questions from you. I'm going to take questions in groups of threes. Please wait for a mic to come to you. And if you could say your name and what organisation you're from or where you're from, that would be really helpful. Um, just right next to you, Penny, at the back first. Uh, hello, Wes. Um, good to see you. Um, thanks for your speech. I'm Adrian James. I'm a practising psychiatrist working in the NHS, and I'm president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Just want to ask you about two things. One is workforce. Thanks very much for saying uh, we can't do it without workforce. It's, it's essential to everything that we want to do. We and the Royal College of Physicians have called for a doubling of the number of medical school places, and we have uh, committed people who want to be doctors 
and they're turned away. We recruit from overseas. The NHS has really relied upon overseas recruitment. We've, they've been done a fantastic job for the NHS. But we know that supply chains for workforce are totally unreliable globally. And in some places, it's actually wrong to be recruiting people. So what about the, the, the plans for workforce and medical school places? Second, your commitment to universal coverage for people with a mental illness who need treatment. As you know, one and a half million people waiting for treatment at the moment. That's the tip of the iceberg because some people don't even come forward. Could you tell us more about your plans for universal coverage? And just thirdly, just a plug, um, uh, prevention and mental health. There's a huge evidence base and the Royal College have funded a public mental health implementation centre growing the evidence, coming up with, with evidence-based plans for what you can actually do. So you can actually prevent mental illness, not all of it, but quite a lot of it, and we'd really love to work with you on that. Thank you. Uh, can I ask, you get an exception as the first questioner, but um, if people could stick to one question, just so we can get through as many <laughs> as possible. Nine questions Great. each round. Thank you. Um, hi there, my name's Neil Gattock, and I work uh, in the field of surgical robotics. Um, just, just wanted to ask you, you laid out a very clear uh, and concise vision for the NHS and the way it provides services. I just wondered what your vision is in terms of patient outcomes in areas like cancer um, as well. Thank you. Thank you. And then we'll do one more just here. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm from uh, the charity Gamble Aware. So we commissioned the National Gambling Treatment Service. Um, my question is, I guess, around prevention. We've had a lot of conversation around there. So when we know that gambling is uh, a serious public health issue and 90% of treatment is currently provided by the third sector, if there's an opportunity to work uh, more closely with the third sector to help prevent that issue, and we've talked a lot about gambling and things, uh, about alcohol, sorry, but obviously if gambling is also considered within that. Thank you. Okay, so we've got med school places, universal coverage, patient outcomes, um, third sector. <coughs> Do you want yeah, sure. Let me take these in reverse order. Um, uh, absolutely agree with you about the cost that we're incurring as a result of gambling addiction. Um, and this is a really good example of a policy issue that sits outside the Department of Health and Social Care, but has a big impact in terms of what we um, deal with. So I would strongly encourage you to engage with Lucy Powell's team, as I do. Um, and we're keen to, to, you know, come to a sensible position on this. I, you know, I don't want to be... Um, you know, the, the killjoy who sort of goes around sort of damping down on people's um, leisurely pursuits, which, um, you know, if, if enjoyed responsibly, doesn't cause us problems, but we, we sit, we're seeing the consequences. So, um, but let's absolutely pick up that conversation. I'm really keen to, 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 to work with you. Um, Neil, um, you're certainly preaching to the choir on surgical robotics. I, I underwent robotic surgery um, last year for my kidney cancer. It was very successful. Um, I went up to Cambridge to have a go on the robot myself. Um, I managed to cut a very nice, neat shape, uh, star shape out of a rubber glove, but I don't think I'm going to be the answer to the surgical uh, workforce crisis um, based on my work. Um, you're absolutely right to raise the issue about cancer outcomes. And, you know, Cancer Research UK came in and did a presentation to the Shadow um, Health team, which um, showed in very stark terms what's happening in cancer outcomes because we're just not getting there early enough. And one of my big anxieties about the overall size of the NHS waiting list is that within those waiting lists for a whole range of conditions will be an awful lot of undiagnosed cancer. I, my cancer was only detected because I went into A&E with a kidney stone. Um, otherwise, I might well be t talking to you now with, um, you know, cancer growing and spreading and having no idea. Mm. Um, so uh, absolutely um, with you on that. I'm deeply disheartened by the... Um, 
absence of the 10-year cancer strategy that's been promised over and over again. It's one of those areas where, going back to Anita's challenge, I think there ought to be cross-party consensus to ensure um, longevity over successive governments. Um, but also, the cancer strategy, like so many other things, does not sit um, in a vacuum. And so unless we sort out the burning wreckage um, around it, the cancer strategy will be you know, doomed to fail because we're not fixing the fundamentals, um, which comes to um, Adrian's um, challenges. Um, on mental health, we've got a clear policy there to build the um, mental health workforce, 8,500 new mental health support workers to deliver support in every school, get there early, particularly with children and young people, community hubs in every community. We announced that last year. We're still very much committed to it, and Rosanna will be talking about that particularly um, in relation to um, health as part of the productive economy and the impact of mental um, ill health on wider society. And also, let's be honest about this, um, you know, the cost of living crisis, what on earth is that doing for um, mental ill health um, in our country? So these things are all linked. Um, and the final thing I would say is I'm very well aware of the um, report that um, both um, your Royal College and the Royal College of Physicians published on workforce we studied it very carefully. Um, keep your eyes peeled for, um, for what we say at conference this week about workforce. Um, I hope you'll be happy with the ambition that we set out, um, and I'd be really keen to work with you um, so that this actually works. Um, but, yeah, um, we are. It's a very good example of how, um, you know, expert, good quality research really helps to inform our thinking. So um, we'll have more to say on workforce this week. Okay, next, come here at the front. Hello, my name is Kate Chin. I'm a councillor in uh, Epsom in Surrey. I um, worked in health and mental health particularly for many years and I've recently moved to social care and I'm absolutely shocked. Mm -hmm. The commissioning in particular is horrific. Social services will pay, I think it's less than £4 for a 15-minute visit. How can that protect people's um, dignity and privacy? The CQC, a board of practice, would give you... Uh, inadequate, so a lot of the providers are refusing to do it. And I think the CQC and the commissioners are, are not really being, really need a huge overhaul so that people are given the care and treatment they deserve. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Just over here. Hi, my name is Nick, uh, Nick Atuna from the Health Service Journal. Um, yesterday you did speak about the National Care Service and and bringing staff over on the agenda for change and so on. Um, I just wanted more details about that in terms of bringing on, what, presumably thousands of staff into the National Care Service and the funding of that and any policy predictions or projections that come with that. Just any further detail would be appreciated. Thank you. And then... Councillor Claire Douglas, leader of the Labour Group and City of York Council. Um, what we're talking about here, so much of it is reliant upon the services that local authorities are delivering, public health, social care, but I haven't heard them mentioned in anything that we've spoken about yet today. I'd like to ask Wes particularly, how does partnership funding work for local authorities to deliver on what we're desperate to deliver on and yet don't have the money to do. Thanks. Thank you. So, local authorities, national care service and commissioning. 
Uh, yeah, um, Kate and Claire's questions are related, so I'll come back to those in a moment. Um, Nick, just to come to, to your point about um, sort of where we are on, um, on social care workforce, um, we, we've announced as part of Angela Rayner's package on employment rights, um, we've announced that um, we will put in place a number of fair pay agreements across a range of sectors and social care will be our first port of call, first priority. Um, and so we will get employers and unions around the table to negotiate fair pay um, agreements. That's the commitment as it stands. Um, where I am on agenda for change, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I'm being very careful about not making, you know, uh, promises I can't keep. Um, uh, you know, I, I, that's the ambition that, you know, in terms of where I want to get to. Um, how quickly is dependent on a range of factors, not least, um, as you, I think, identify resourcing um, and it touches on the point um, Kate was making as well about the commissioning arrangements. You know, uh, the reason people are on poverty pay and social care isn't because employers want to don't want to pay them more. Um, I mean, quite the opposite. I'm 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 hearing a lot of pressure from employers across the, the public sector, private sector, and voluntary sector because they can't recruit and retain the staff they need. Um, so I know that that ultimately comes back to you know government and to and to resourcing of this. Um, but you know. The, the fair pay agreement process will kind of look at that and come up with a, um, you know, with a with a plan. Um, but the reason why social care has to come first is, is it comes back to the overarching points about workforce. Unless we've gripped the workforce crisis, we're not going to solve any of the other problems, which is why it's such a big priority. But I wouldn't go further today beyond the commitments we already made around fair pay agreement. We're not quite there yet. Um, and then on um, um, Claire's point and, and Kate's challenge about... Um, Commissioning, I mean, uh, uh, you know, co commissioning is sort of patchy and inconsistent. I've seen some really great examples of, of good commissioning um, and some really poor examples of commissioning. And I think we've got to um, level up, to borrow a phrase the government seems to have abandoned in favour of trickle down. Um, you know, I think we, we need to make sure that the best practice we see in terms of commissioning um, is widespread across local government. But I also recognise... Um, to sort of Claire's point as well, that the, with the, even with the best commissioning arrangements in the world, the resource has got to be there too. And I, I, you know, I, I hear that loud and clear. Um, and to Claire's challenge, um, you know, I'm, before I became an MP, I was cabinet member for health and wellbeing and chair of the health and wellbeing board in the London borough of Redbridge. Um, I, I, I think that a test for integrated care systems that are now in place is, you know, are you looking at spending across um, your system and making sure money is being spent to best use for, in terms of outcomes for patients or care users, but also value for money for the taxpayer? And I'm seeing some good examples of this in some places where hospital trusts are understandably saying, look at the back door to this hospital, look at the bed occupancy, and look at the pressure. I can spend less money by giving some of my budget to local care, um, delivering better value and better outcomes for the patient than if I just keep on, you know, keep on spending money in my own bed. Um, but I'm also seeing too many examples of, of, of trust, hospital trust boards saying, oh, it's not really our job, is it? We're accountable for this money, and oh, I'm not sure we can do that. And that's a good example of what I would call... Um, you know, sort of producer interest, not thinking about the patient first and thinking about 
um, you know, a very narrow technocratic interpretation of their role and responsibility rather than thinking about the patient first. And I have zero patience for that kind of approach. Um, I actually, in terms of we've not talked much about the system um, and structures, and for good reason. Um, it's one of the reasons I talk about change and modernisation rather than reform, because the moment politicians start talking about reform, I kind of hear the audible groan from the sector saying, oh, God, there's another top-down reorganisation coming. No, 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 no. That would be an absolute waste of time, effort and energy. Um, but on ICSs, what I would like to see is evolution rather than counter-revolution, and I would like to go further and do proper integration of health and care budgets so that we are putting the patient and the care user first and getting best value for taxpayer money. And I recognise, um, finally, um, Claire, that even within ICSs, I still get the sense that care providers and local authorities still feel like the small fish compared to the big fish of the NHS. And I'm, I'm still open-minded about whether that's a <coughs> um, statutory change we need to make in terms of powers, roles and responsibilities, or whether this is actually more about culture and building the right culture of partnership. Um, and I think certainly on the latter point, well, in fact, on either, you know, I'd be in a position to take a lead um, from the Department of Health and Social Care. Um, but, I, you know, I, I've, I want to send a strong cultural signal and, you know, strong message that, you know, I want to see more partnership working across the health and care system because I think that is essential to putting the patient and the care user first and getting good value for money for the taxpayer. Yeah, I, I want to come in on, on, on social care um, and the local government point because I think it's absolutely fundamental. And I think it goes to the heart of some of the debates that I hope are happening within National Care Service. So that social care needs investment and reform, I think, is unargued. There are a lot of anxieties about National Care Service and, 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 and I, I want to raise two of those anxieties. Um, one is the sense of, it's really important, I think, that we have central to our thinking that social care is not a support service for the NHS. Yep. Some people need NHS and social care, and when they need both, it needs to work seamlessly. But a huge number of people who need social care services are not primarily users of the NHS. You know, half of the social care budget is for people, younger adults, we, um, many of whom, for example, got learning difficulties. For them, integration with their uh, local community, um, housing, employment, are actually more important than uh, NHS. And um, the point of social care from the 2014 Care Act, which had cross-party support, is to support well-being yeah, for the individual, to start with what's important for the, the, those individuals' lives. The NHS, with the best will in the world, doesn't understand that. It's a medical model. And for people who need social care, we don't need a medical model. That would be a move backwards. We need to ensure that people can live the lives that they want. You know, social care futures um, have captured it beautifully. You know, they want, people want a place to call home with people they care for doing the things that they love, yeah? Now, the NHS can be part of that, but it's not the answer. And you can't deliver that nationally from a national single monolith service. That has to be about uh, a play, uh, uh, something that is rooted in place and the assets and, of that place and, and the nature of the community. So there are some things that need to be fixed nationally, 
But I mean, I think if we turn social care into a national service that is primarily about supporting the NHS, we will have done something that we will truly live to regret. Thank you. Okay, another round of questions. Sorry, I already have the Hi, I'm Alice from the British Red Cross. Um, a lot of our work is around patient flow, and I'd like to talk a bit, or you guys to talk a bit more about kind of plans around patient flow, specifically around kind of the high intensity use of A&E and people who are frequently bumping in and out of A&E and also on hospital discharge and people who are not being discharged effectively. Thank you. Thank you. And then over here. Thank you. Uh, Lindy Urquhart from Mid Derbyshire CLP. I've never understood why a government that uh, wanged on so much about levelling up closed 10,000 sure start centres. Um, are there any plans to revive that sector? Hi, uh, Sam Freeman Carney from the Health Policy Lead at Parkinson's uh, UK. And here with uh, Clive, who's uh, one of our volunteers. Um, so, the question I want to ask was about social care. So, we did a report looking at people who have Parkinson's related dementia. And in a survey of unpaid carers, so sort of friends, family, relatives who are caring uh, for a loved one, they said that only sort of 25% of um, home care workers understood. Uh, Parkinson's and uh, only 29% understood their dementia um, of the person they were caring for. And so we are calling for um, funding of training in Parkinson's and, and dementia for care workers. And I think in terms of kind of making social care a more attractive uh, profession and, and uh, professional development, I'm just interested in your thoughts in um, in providing more kind of condition-specific training for, for care workers, both uh, in the home and in care homes. Thank you. And then I'll take one more, and then just right next. Hi, it's Chris Smythe from The Times. I just wanted to ask, where's your answer on prevention was quite interesting. You talked about the importance of it, but you also, are you saying that you wouldn't uh, bring in the, the ban on buy one, get one free deals or other things that the government is pausing uh, and if they reverse the current sugar tax, are you saying you wouldn't bring that back uh, during a cost of living crisis? And if so, how can we actually do anything about these quite deep-seated issues when the voluntary approach that you talked about hasn't really made much of a difference over the last decade or more? Thank you. Wes? Yeah, these are great, they're great questions. Um, uh, Alice, on, on patient flow, I mean... Uh, this is why fixing the front door to the NHS in primary care is so important. You can't do that without workforce, but we also need to think about making sure um, that we've got the right people doing the right things. Um, you know, GPs have taken a hell of a battering, um, uh, I think disproportionately and unfairly so, actually. Um, I'm not satisfied with um, the ease of access to primary care and the service that GPs are offering. Um, but I, I don't think it's fair to simply say this is the fault of GPs and they're just not helping people as much as they, as they want to. Um, I, I, what I would like to see is more done through community pharmacy who can alleviate some pressure on GPs. Um, our pledge on mental health will not only have the added advantage of, most importantly, providing good quality mental health care to people who need it, that will also alleviate some pressure on GP services 
to, um, but we, we, you know, we need to get the cavalry there. Um, you know, some of the stuff the government's already said about a wider range of roles in a GP practice, um, you know, I, I think it's a sort of low-hanging fruit that um, we've been pushing them to go, go on. Um, but I think what we were doing when we were in government, particularly you know, in the sort of second half of that Labour government, um, with Aradazi, um, you know, I'm I'm keen to revisit that and to make you know to sort of update it, but to, to <coughs> make sure we're really fixing that front door to the NHS. And as I say, social care. I and mean, I absolutely take Anita's challenge, by the way, and I think she's right in what she said. And um, for me, national care service is not about monolithic, top-down, centralised provision, um, and it's not all about the state. I was with PSS on Friday here in Liverpool. Um, looking at their shared lives um, program, um, voluntary sector, innovative. Um, you know, the, the state is not always um, the best, and the state is not always the place where good ideas come from. In fact, a lot of the time, the change and innovation is coming from outside, and we could learn a lot from the voluntary sector, particularly in terms of listening to the users of public services, um, which is dear to my heart. Um, um, so I take that challenge, um, but you know, of course, people, the public, and the voters do understand the NHS, and they understand social care in relation to the NHS. And if we can use that to leverage more support for investing in social care, that can only be good for the care sector. But I agree with Anita; it does have to be done in the right way. And I, um, you continue to hold my feet to the fire on that, um, uh, Lindy. Oh, you're preaching to the choir on Sure Start. I go into work every day with a picture of Tessa Jowell on my wall. Um, to remind me um, of the good that you can do in government and where relentless optimism and drive can take you, which, um, I'll be honest, I mean, I don't need much encouragement on a relentless opposition, uh, um, uh, relentless optimism today, but there have been points in the last seven years where I have needed that. Um, and I can tell you Bridget Philipson is absolutely committed to early years and understands that that's where you get the most bang for the buck, the, the best um, investment in life chances and opportunities so um, keep an eye out on Bridget and, and where she's taking her brief as Shadow Education Secretary um, and uh, finally Chris's challenge um, the time's calling for heavier handed regulation from the state my goodness what's happened to the world um, but um, no to, to be clear on this Chris um, I, I don't want to see the government abandon the sugar tax I think the Conservatives have spent enough time trashing our um, legacy in government without starting to trash what little legacy they have um, and I you know I, I think that I, I suspect that Therese Coffey has been beaten very early on the on the sugar tax it has been an effective public health measure I don't want to see that um, go I, I think um, as for further regulation on food and you know on the food sector and sort of buy one get one free deals um, it, 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 the answer from me isn't no, it's not now. Um, I, I do think it would be tinnied in the middle of a cost of living crisis to go harder on food regulation and on, um, and on deals for families. Um, but that's why I want to work um, in a constructive way with food and drink to see what proactively they can do. Um, we must surely understand that, you know, salt and sugar is killing people prematurely and from a Labour perspective, there's a deep social inequality and injustice to this. Um, so, look, let's, um, as I said earlier, let's, let's put this, um, what's traditionally been ideological battleground to the test. Um, we'll, we'll do state regulation um, on tobacco, 
and we'll do constructive um, dialogue on food and drink for now and see where it takes us. Um, and I hope that um, that test of carrot and stick um, will, will work. But, you know, as the economy grows, as things <coughs> improve, um, we may well be in a position to do more. But I, I, I do think it would be tineered to go for heavy-handed regulation on, on particularly on food pricing in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. Thank you. I think we've probably got time for two more questions before we have to draw this to a close. So let's make them really good ones. Right, we'll go here. Hiya. Um, you said you'd like to see more... Who are you and where are you from? Oh, sorry. Uh, Elisa Luku from Chemist and Druggist. Um, you said you'd like to see more done through community pharmacy. Could you expand a bit more on that? And does the sector fit into your plan for refocusing healthcare on prevention? One down here at the front. Hi, I'm Joshua Forrester from Papyrus Prevention of Young Suicide. Just on your note of uh, training more people, getting the workforce for the NHS, would you reform that to include mental health training and suicide prevention training in the future? Thank you. I'll take one more. Hi, Juliet Bovary, Chief Executive of the Stroke Association and Chair of the Richmond Group of Charities. I really welcome what you're saying about workforce being at the heart of a reform plan, but I wonder if we're missing a trick in terms of not properly utilising the workforce that exists within the voluntary sector, tens of thousands of really skilled um, kind of health and social care workers, but also the role of volunteers. I think the COVID pandemic has absolutely proven that if you appropriately train volunteers, many of whom are patients with who are experts by lived experience, they can also make a real contribution. Thank you. Okay, so our final questions. Community pharmacy, um, suicide prevention, and the role of the voluntary sector um, in the workforce. Yeah, and I didn't answer the question on dementia last time around, which was very bad, and I wasn't avoiding it. Um, uh, I think that's why, in terms of social care workforce, yes, it's about pay in terms and conditions. It's also about professional development. And in fact, I'm not going to talk about care workers any longer. I'm going to talk about care professionals because that's what they are they are expert in what they do um, they are highly skilled people um, and we're losing too many of those people's skills uh, but I take your point about dementia um, and this is where workforce training comes in and professional development comes in um, because you know we've got to make sure that people are equipped to deal with a wide range of um, people they will meet um, to make sure they get the, the best outcomes best quality of life the best care so I'd absolutely take that challenge on um, and then the final question we had um, on the voluntary sector, completely agree. I mean, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, the government should mobilise the jabs army of volunteers this winter in terms of um, COVID booster and flu jabs, monkeypox vaccine, if there's any available. Um, you know, I, I, I do think there's a, a big role for the voluntary sector to play. I'm a big fan of the voluntary sector, having worked in it in my professional career outside politics. Um, and I think that this is why we need not just investment in the workforce, but a proper workforce plan. And I'd be delighted to meet with you and talk about what that would look like and, and how the part the voluntary sector and existing professionals can play. I think that is a really great offer and will bite your hand off. Um, and Joshua's question on um, mental health um, and the mental health professional development, um, I agree. I mean, that's the sort of central to the... A mental health pledge that we've announced um, but I think it's also about again going back to the challenge we had on dementia making sure that we've got people um, equipped 
um, you know, not just in the health service actually, but across society in terms of things like mental health first aid, in terms of mental health awareness, um, because lots of public service professionals are coming into contact with serious cases of mental ill health, and I think lots of them don't know how to handle it. And whether we're talking about teachers, police officers, but also, you know, some of the stories I'm hearing from hospitals <coughs> at the moment are pretty harrowing. Um, and we, we've got to deal with this better because I think we're, we're adding injury um, to people with mental ill health and we are adding to um, staff distress and burnout as well because they've not got, they're not equipped to deal effectively with the challenge, so take that on. And Eliza's um, question on community pharmacy, so what, what more could they do? I mean, uh, I, I actually support what was said last week and there, were, there wasn't much in that statement, but the stuff around... Um, uh, ease of access, you know, in terms of improved prescribing um, rights for pharmacy, I absolutely agree with that. I also think in terms of dispensing, I've had a really awful case involving a friend and her and father-in-law recently. Um, he was literally dying. Um, she couldn't access um, the powerful pain-relieving drugs that he needed um, because they, she went to the pharmacy, pharmacist wasn't there, the drugs were on the shelf, already packaged, already labelled, already bundled up, but the person behind the counter, counter wasn't legally allowed to hand those drugs over. Now, if she'd ordered those drugs online and that person worked in the mailing house, that same person who wasn't allowed to hand them over a counter could have put them in an envelope, labelled them and put them in the post. And this is just daft bureaucracy. Um, uh, so I think we can make some you know, sensible improvements on, on things like medicine dispensing but also on things like diagnostics, checks. Um, and actually, um, some of this isn't, is also about public awareness. I think too many people out there think that all pharmacists do is, is, you know, they're just really good at counting pills and putting the right number in a packet and handing them over, rather than recognise these are highly trained, highly qualified healthcare professionals who can help with a wide range of things. So, you know, while you're, you know, until we get to raise coffee's brand new telephone um, answering system for primary care, which was the big technological innovation she talked about last Thursday, the telephone. Oh, great. Welcome to the 21st century, folks. It's a telephone with new hold music. Um, uh, actually, pharmacy can do an awful lot of good for people in terms of avoiding them needing to wait two weeks to see a GP or worse still, turning up an A&E where they will have a miserable experience. They will wait a hell of a long time. They'll meet a probably quite frustrated, if polite, doctor in the emergency department saying, what the hell are you doing here? I've got serious people to see. And it costs us so much money in the process. You know, bad for the patient, bad for the taxpayer, um, bad all round. And I think, I, you know, I'm talking a lot to, um, you know, lots of the big players in um, community pharmacy at the moment, as well as, some, you know, some of the smaller family-owned businesses as well. Um, so I really want pharmacy to play a bigger role in primary care. Thank you, Wes. Um, very sadly, our time is up, so I'm going to have to draw this event to a close. Um, first of all, I want to say enormous thanks to Wes and to Anita for a brilliant conversation, uh, brilliant contributions today. Thank you to the Health Foundation for supporting this event. Yeah. And most importantly, thank you to all of you. Um, absolutely brilliant turnout, fantastic questions, really rich discussion. And I know we're going to look forward to hearing more from Wes on this in your speech. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad the questions stopped because all I've got left to say now is the things that we're announcing this week. And I'd, <laughs> I'd, get, I'd get shot by Rachel and Keir if I started doing that. But um, I hope you'll like what we say. And I hope beyond this conference you'll work with us because we need your help. This is a team effort. And as I said at the outset, I hope this gives you confidence the cavalry is coming with Labour. Thank you very much. Thank you.